The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Francis Ryan. We spoke about Francis's new book, Crippled, Austerity and the Demonization of Disabled People. We chatted about the impact of austerity on people living with disability, the way in which New Labour's support for means testing and conditionality paved the way for the coalition government's welfare cuts, and we also talked about the current situation of disability rights activism. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has loads of brilliant left-wing titles that might be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is the Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality by Bhaskar Sankara. From one of the most prominent voices on the American left, the book is a galvanising argument for why we need socialism today, exploring socialism's history and presenting a realistic vision for its future. You can find out more about the Socialist Manifesto at versobooks.com. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And do follow the show on Facebook and Twitter if you're not already doing so. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Dr. Francis Ryan is a Guardian journalist, broadcaster and campaigner. Named one of the UK's most influential disabled people by the Shaw Trust in 2018, her weekly Guardian column, Hardworking Britain, has been at the forefront of coverage of austerity. She has a doctorate in politics from the University of Nottingham, and she was highly commended Specialist Journalist of the Year at the 2019 National Press Awards for her work on disability, and has just been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize for Exposing Social Evils. Crippled, Austerity and the Demonisation of Disabled People is her first book. So in the book, you have these different chapters looking at uh, different aspects of the effects of of austerity on people uh, living with disabilities. And in each of those chapters, you you have interviews with people about their their actual situation. And, you know, I mean, I found, you know, reading those kind of by turns uh, upsetting and then depressing, you know, sort of maybe quite quite angry. I mean, I was, I was reading it when Theresa May was resigning and, uh, you know, I felt like it was kind of a good uh, antidote to any, you know, feelings of, of sympathy, I might, you know, anyone might, might feel for, for Theresa May. How did you find writing the book in terms of doing that research? What was your experience of, of those conversations like? Yeah, so I think, um, so I've been sort of researching this for about seven years now. So my first sort of research started when the bedroom tax hit, so about seven, six years ago. 
and that was really the first policy that not just got the big headlines, but was one of those examples of the first policies that were disproportionately affecting disabled people. I think really early on at that point, it was quite obvious of just how the seemingly small cuts were having this really fast, really devastating impact on people's ability to live lives that you know have the most basic elements like having three meals a day being able to leave the house and as those policies you know it wasn't just the bedroom tax obviously it was multiple cuts at once things like you know cuts to social care the abolition of disability living allowance which pays for the extra cost of disability changes to council tax and all these things you know in the really quickly I think when you talk to disabled people who've been hit by these cuts, it, it, it's really quite devastating to listen to how this has impacted them. But it's also, I think, just a really clear lesson in what social policy does. I think a lot of this stuff seems really abstract and it seems like it, it's not, you know, what's, what's a ten or a week? But actually, really, really easily when you talk to people who are actually on the front line of this, it becomes incredibly clear just what the human consequences of austerity is. And in terms of the disproportionate impact, why do you think it was that the disabled people were disproportionately affected by by the cuts? Was that the the nature of, of, of the social care system itself? Or do you think there was a kind of deliberate uh, strategy of hitting a demographic that because of prejudice and, and, and stereotyping, it's it's quite easy for the government to 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 attack with limited repercussions. Yeah, so I think it's probably a little bit of, of all those things. It's we know that statistically that disabled people have been hit on average nine times harder than other people, and if you're severely disabled, you've been hit a staggering nineteen times harder than other people. And that's partly because, by definition of having a disability or long-term health condition, you're more likely to be reliant on not just the state, but multiple parts of the state. So, for example, you're more likely to have, you know, even if I'm in good enough health to be in work, I might receive disability living allowance now PIP to pay for the extra cost of disability. I might have the local authority providing with social care. I might have a child who has a special educational need and therefore need educational support. Um, I might be reliant on particular NHS services. So there's these multiple things at once that I'm relying on as a disabled person. And when you have cuts across the board in each of these different departments, it you know statistically will therefore hit disabled people. But I think in addition to that, they simply were seen as an easy target. I think you know it's not it's not a new phenomenon that in in times of of economic strain that marginalized groups are scapegoated and i think what was unique about what happened to disabled people wasn't so much that they were scapegoated we've seen that throughout history of various groups but that it sort of changed the narrative about disability in this country as a as a nation i think we've always had this sort of narrative where we think of ourselves as a compassionate and fair country. And that's, you know, a, a hugely rose-tinted, revisionist look on, on Britain as a, as a country. But actually, when it comes to disabled people, 
we've always been quite open about, oh, actually, even in tough economic times, we still will, we will still provide a safety net for disabled people. But actually, what we saw with austerity was ministers and parts of the press became incredibly open about saying, actually, we don't necessarily have to do this. And there are huge numbers of disabled people, supposedly, who aren't really disabled, and they don't actually need the support. And that was the really toxic narrative, I think, that suddenly there was this sort of suspicion cast on people with disabilities in this country, that they weren't really disabled and that they were drain on the public purse. In relation to that, I think one of the things I was most struck by in the book was the extent to which not only the broader population buys into that narrative, but you describe how disabled people themselves buy into it to some extent in in that they want to uh, differentiate themselves from this supposedly large population who are fiddling the system and they want to say, no, I, my, my need is genuine. I really you know, do need this. Um, it, was that something you were, were struck by? Yeah, I think it's, and, it, and it's never in a, in a sort of um, a derogatory or toxic way. It's simply, I think it's, a, there's an element of shame when people talk to you about poverty generally. You know, I think you can never, as a journalist, but as anyone, you can never underestimate what it takes for people to turn up to a food bank, for example, or to tell you just how difficult things have become, you know, since their benefits have been removed. You know, I was speaking to people about incredibly intimate things and, you know, people describe me things that seem completely obscene. You know, I spoke to one uh, man called Jim Bob who told me he pitched a tent in his living room in Scotland because he couldn't afford the heating anymore after having his disability benefits cut. And he literally pitched a tent in, in his living room um, because he worked out that he'd be warmer if he was in a confined space. I think once you start saying those things out loud, it becomes really obvious why people would feel shame about those situations, even though you know it's the people who, could, who are forcing them into those situations who should be ashamed. But it's a natural human instinct to, to feel shame about how desperate your life has become in those ways. When you live within a society when you're you know you're picking up the newspapers with the front pages that are calling you and people like you scroungers and work shy it's you know you're the one who goes in the streets and people yell at you go and get a job you know you're not really disabled it's you know who couldn't be internalizing that sort of narrative yeah and i suppose it's part of a a, a broader development in neoliberal subjectivity where we're all supposed to be self-reliant and society is conceived as broadly meritocratic and people get what they what they deserve and so on yeah yeah that hugely i think the and we don't often talk about disability in those terms but that's what i really try to do in in the book which is as you say to talk about the way that sort of those broad ideas of you know, capitalism inequality play with disability and part of that is absolutely that idea that there's something, it, the way I think society talks about us as individuals, you know, that we should work a certain amount of hours a week, that we should earn a certain amount of money, that we should contribute more than we so-called take, those sort of ideas are really destructive for a lot of disabled people, particularly those who are too sick or disabled to work. That that really that, that really plays to it. I think, you know, when we look at stuff, like the, the disproportionate impact of benefit sanctions, for example, on disabled people, the fact that you're much more likely to be sanctioned if you're disabled, despite the fact that 
you just physically or mentally can't work, but the system sanctions you nonetheless, and you're more likely to be treated that way if you've got a health condition. I think this really speaks to the fact that those that those really bigger ideas of of you know the labour market inequality just are particularly toxic for people with disabilities. Thinking about the coalition government years and, and subsequently, I suppose um, it, it can be easy to romanticise the situation before the coalition government came to power mm. and to see the new Labour years as you know pretty pretty rosy in comparison. And and you know you d- you do point out that the situation was better before the cuts, obviously. Um, and you know I always sort of think that although I don't share their politics. People on the centre left who say it's always better to have a Labour government are right. You know <laughs> that's just a fact, um, even even of the the Tony Blair government. Um, but to to what extent do you think the new Labour government laid the basis for the cuts in terms of this turn towards means testing um, mm. and conditionalising the welfare system? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's really important to get that balance, which is what I I try to do when writing the book because. I think people forget how recently people in Britain with disabilities were essentially excluded from employment, from schools, from public transport. You know, we were shut away in institutions. This was 30, 40 years ago. Um, So the 1990s was, for disabled people, a huge moment where we genuinely did start gaining our basic civil rights through equality legislation and the social security system. So those those gains really need to be acknowledged. But at the same time, absolutely, it, it's, it gets us nowhere by not acknowledging the way that, that even the Labour government did make serious mistakes. Um, I think one of those major errors was the sanction system. So even though we know that the coalition government rapidly um, steamrolled the sanction system into something that, you know, New Labour wouldn't have envisaged. At the same time, it was New Labour that, that, that planted those seeds, that, that that concept of Social Security not being an entitlement, but something that could be uh, removed or rewarded based on, on behaviour, was an, was an incredibly harmful um, concept um, that has tragically developed over the past 10 years into something that has just has really grotesquely shaped how we see social security in this country similarly um the rollout of fit for work tests that you know that was a, a new labor idea again it was rolled out by the coalition in a way that wasn't planned by new labor but it was new labor that that introduced those tests that we've seen have such a devastating impact on disabled people so i think acknowledging the gains and the the failures is is a really important balance. And I mean, in terms of that double move that you that you talk about, where the situation on the level of rights is improving at the same time as the as, as material deprivation it becomes worse and makes it harder for those rights to be much more than than symbolic rights. And uh, I mean, thinking about that, it was making me think of the situation of, of black Americans in, in the United States and uh, 
the Obama presidency where you have some victories at the level of, of representation and you know there's all this sort of talk of, of the emergence of a of a post-race society but at the same time the material conditions of, of black Americans are actually actually getting getting worse and and you see this um disjunction between people's perception of the degree of social mobility and the reality yes. um do you think we're still living in that kind of moment in the UK or, or do you think we're transitioning to an even more reactionary situation where the attack uh, becomes at both a material level and at the level of, of rights? I think, I think absolutely. I think this thing's really linked and we, and we don't talk enough about how uh, material conditions and rights are linked. I think for disabled people, so we're seeing the way I think really clearly how, for example, cuts to the social care system are directly linked to disabled people's rights to live independently. So a major part of disability campaigns over the last you know, 50 years that most non-disabled people probably don't know about is the, the, the right for disabled people to live in their own homes as opposed to you know, living in our childhood bedrooms for life with our parents or being put in institutions where no one can see us away from the community. And that, you know, the, the right to live independently um, is the mo- one of the most basic human rights that disabled people in Britain were really only gaining through the 70s and 80s. And we're seeing over the last 10 years how even though we have the legislation in place, even though we have this sort of um, cultural shift which has improved to the extent that more people now understand that disabled people are normal people who want a home and a family just like anyone else. Due to the billions of pounds being pulled from the social care system and local authorities being on their knees, that that so-called right no longer exists for many disabled people. You know, we're getting reports of there's about a million disabled people in the country now who don't have social care, um, enough social care to do really basic things like get dressed or go to the toilet, let alone go to work or go to the pub to meet friends. So that link between funding and rights, I think, is really crucial because often we talk about funding cuts, but we don't talk about it in terms of rights. And and that's huge for disabled people because it's no good to give disabled people sort of this general abstract concept of, of equal rights, when in reality, if the if the money has been removed, then those rights are completely meaningless. And I suppose it's a very attractive uh, strategy if you're imposing these policies, because any criticism you get, you can just say, well, you know, these people have, have the same rights. They have, <laughs> on paper, they have the same chances as, as, as everybody else. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think it's really interesting with disabled people in particular, because you get kind of two, like a twin approach. I think you get that what you just talked about there, that idea that, oh, actually, you know, actually everything's fine. Everything's, you know, Britain is this amazing place for disabled people. Try living in some other country. Britain is so developed and wonderful. You know, and that idea is if disabled people in this country can't, it's almost as if we can't complain, as if we can't point out that actually, yes, our life is better than if we've been born in a, in a poorer uh, country, for example. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's right that I'm waiting 14 hours to go to the toilet because the local authorities cut my social care. But at the same time, I think there's still the idea that actually disabled people don't need the same things as other people. 
or don't want the same things as the people, there's still huge cultural prejudice around disability in this country. Um, you know, to go back to social care, whenever I write about social care, and if I report, like for example, in the book, I talk about a guy called Pete who is 30 and uses a wheelchair, and he owned his own flat and was living independently with the help of personal assistance. But when his social care was cut, he no longer had enough hours to live safely in his own home. And he ended up having to sell his flat. And he now lives in a care home for the elderly. And he's 30 years old. And when I talk about that with some non-disabled people who are perfectly compassionate and kind people and maybe on the left themselves, but actually, a lot of the time, the response that we get is, well, isn't it, isn't it safer for those people? Isn't it better for them to be taken care of in those homes? And it's sort of those cultural attitudes that say, no, it, it's just as horrific as if I told you that I'm going to start, you know, selling your home and move you into a home with people who are your grandparents' age. It, it, it often isn't perceived in the same way just because we're talking about people with disabilities. So I think that, that cultural idea... Of, of sort of acceptable inequality, I think is really important too. Do you think that that attitude might also, to some extent, flow from the sort of gradual nature of the process? You know, if if the situation of people living independently becomes worse because of cuts, then over time you can sort of see the the, the idea of living independently as, as too optimistic, and and therefore actually. On that basis, it'd be better if people were living in institutions. And so there's a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic with these cuts where you make initial cuts and it, it makes the argument for uh, that transition to, to putting people in institutions. Yeah, I think, that, I think whether it's disability or, or cuts generally, there's a, there's a real um, risk with the normalisation of it. I think we see... You know, whether it's something like the number of people at, at food banks or, um, you know, the impact of disability benefit cuts, that this idea that, as you say, if there's so much right now, you know, in politics, there's, there's so much hardship and inequality being, um, being pushed onto people who can't take it. And I think it becomes really a crucial issue is to sort of resist the normalisation of that. And I think with disability in particular, we're fighting another battle, which is sort of there's already a perception when it comes to disabled people's lives that they're sort of inherently difficult, that they're inherently, um, you know, isolated and a bit tragic and, and poor. When actually, in reality, disabled people's lives can be just as fulfilling and brilliant as anyone else's. But it's the, when the structures aren't in place, to assist us to have those opportunities, the difficulties arise. So I think for disabled people and the cuts that we're facing, it's sort of a double issue of that wider sense of normalisation of hardship, but also the normalisation that, that, that disabled people's lives are sort of naturally a bit miserable. I think those sort of, that issue is, is, is just as important to, to, to challenge. On that, I mean, in, in the book, you talk about that as a problem n very much not confined to the right. I mean, you, you, you describe how when trying to combat the austerity narrative uh, and with particular regard to people with disabilities, you talk about the language that's used and it's this, this sort of uh, trope of, um, oh, they're hitting the most vulnerable people in society 
could you explain why you think that kind of language is, is really unhelpful and how it serves to p- perpetuate those stereotypes? Yeah, so I think, I think the idea of, of vulnerability is a, what we, we, we hear it a lot, don't we? We, we hear it as, as a way of society should always help the most vulnerable, a test of a civilised society is how it treats the most vulnerable. And it's completely understandable that we use that phrase because it all speaks to the idea that we want to be compassionate and that we should always, at an absolute minimum, protect people through a safety net who are, who are most in need. But I think actually, when you break it down, it, it, it's quite damaging because it suggests that there's something about disability that is inherently vulnerable, that disabled people are inherently vulnerable. And I have never met really any disabled person that describes themselves as vulnerable. I would certainly never describe myself as, as vulnerable. I think that vulnerability comes when the state pulls away the support that you need to live a safe and dignified life. People become vulnerable when their social care is cut and they've got no one to help them out of bed in the morning. People become vulnerable when their disability benefits are cut and they can't afford to eat regular meals. And I think that idea of rejecting, the idea that disabled people are inherently vulnerable is key to understanding and sort of um, encoding the, the, the understanding that society is what makes us vulnerable or safe. And currently, it is the huge changes and um, rollback of, of support in this country that is making disabled people vulnerable. Nothing about ourselves. I wonder if the left's attachment to that sort of language is also reflective of the fact that even at the best of times, things weren't so great in that sense that, as you're talking about, vulnerability is something imposed upon people. Um, mm. If we, if the left at the initiation of the austerity program conceived of disabled people as being vulnerable, that must have reflected something about the reality of the situation for disabled people in Britain at that time. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a challenge for, for people on the left to sort of embrace disability campaigning, if you like. Um, I think there's an issue generally on the left with inclusion of disabled people and um, support for issues that affect disabled people. I think there are a number of amazing campaigns to support disabled people, for example, that we've seen in recent years. But I think for many disabled people, we often look at sort of wider campaigns on the left over the last 10 years, for example. Um, but I think, I think for some disabled people, we feel a little bit forgotten, perhaps, by the wider left movement. I think I would, you know, when we see the campaigns that really hit the mainstream, you know, things like cuts to the NHS, cuts to education, those issues are obviously important, and we were always pleased to see them uh, raised by, by those of us on the left. But I was, I would love if, as a as a as a movement, we took more, I think, focus on disabled people and didn't and didn't see it as a separate issue. I think that's one of the things that disability is often seen as this quite niche and side affair to the rest of the left's fight. But actually, you know, it's integral whether it's 
the you know employment, low wages, whether it's um, cuts to local authorities, whether it's education, whatever passion we have as the left for these causes, disability is very much at the heart. And I think going forward, it would be it would be really fantastic if those on the left um, that care about disability issues really work to put what's happening to disabled people at the at the front and centre of, of these campaigns. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.